Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Spear Factor. Today we're speaking with Robert Cross and Michael Orr from One Drop Spearfishing. Uh, They're located down in Guam. And uh, I've met these guys a few years ago and been diving with them every chance I can. Uh, they're amazing people, and it's an amazing group of guys. And uh, I hope you enjoy. And as always, we got to give a big shout out to our sponsors, uh, Camara Spearfishing. Uh, the best thing about Camara Spearfishing is, wow, the uh, tip actually works. And it uh, replaces the high expensive... Uh, slip tips. It allows you to hunt around rocks without any issues. Uh, I personally use it and I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't personally use it and believe in it. So check out the side slips at camaraspearfishing.com. And uh, the good news is if you get there and you decide you want to purchase, which you should, first of all, uh, but if you put in the Spear Factor promo code, that's promo code is Spear Factor, you'll get an additional 5% off. And um, that 5%, to be honest, comes back to me, which helps me do this whole thing and makes my wife happy. So I appreciate that very much uh, if you do decide to purchase. Also, our other sponsors, um, a new sponsor as well this week is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, check it out, Paul Rodriguez. Uh, his Instagram, Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, I got a chance to meet Paul and go dive with him. And I've used his products to hunt dogs down in uh, Micronesia. And again, I believe in it. It's a, a good gun, really good gun uh, at a really good price. So check it out. And as always, we're affiliated with the One Drop Spearfishing, the boys down in Guam doing it right. Uh, spearfishing to feed the families and friends. And just love being in the ocean. All right, now that we got that done, let's get started with this episode. All right, we're here with uh, Mike and Rob from uh, One Drop Spearfishing. Hello, boys. What's up, guys? Hey, Brett. (laughs) So, uh, 
I had the pleasure of meeting you guys and spending quite a bit of time with you guys. Uh, yeah, why don't you? Well, why don't you um, uh, kind of share everybody what your background is in spearfishing and you know how you got into it? Go ahead, man. Um, well, I mean, we live on an island, right? Paradise. There's not much else to do to keep you out of trouble. For me, it was spearfishing. So I've been in the water with my pops growing up all my life. And then really started consistently spearfishing with uh, one of our team members, Manette, uh, after he came back from Hawaii in 2009 or 10. So it's been like 10 years now, solid spearfishing twice a week, pretty consistent. And I haven't stopped since, so kind of addicted. <laughs> uh, I guess seriously got into it in 2009 when I sailed across the Pacific. We took a boat from Mexico, well, from Canada to uh, up to Alaska, then down to Mexico, and then across to Australia. And so, I mean, yeah, we were in the most pristine places possible. And so, yeah, started spearfishing, of course, more consistently there. Um, certainly very weird and very different than now because we we're in such pristine locations often that we didn't use camouflage or any of that kind of stuff, just like a single banded gun. I never even used a reel until I moved to Guam. Um, so anyway, so yeah, we shot a lot of really, really amazing fish and really sort of um, really easy conditions. I never had to dive very deep or anything. And then uh, took a hiatus when I was in grad school and all that. And then uh, moving back to Guam or moving to Guam three years ago uh, really opened my eyes to to a totally different sort of very um, advanced technical aspects of spearfishing just because of need, right? This place is, uh, you have to dive deep to catch fish here. So yeah, it's hard times. Um, camouflage and double, triple banded guns and all the floats and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so yeah, I've learned a ton since I've been fishing with these crazy guys. So I know uh, when I first came down there a couple of years ago, we uh we started pushing out offshore more and all that and it was really cool to be a part of that um so when when you go to go let's say you're going offshore like what are some things that you look for obviously banks and things like that but when you when you go to hit those places and you get there what are some things do you look for in order to set up uh to hunt fish or do you understand what i'm saying like Sure. Uh, I don't know. For me, I mean, I'm a biologist, right? And so um, I think that most of, I've learned in my education that most of the natural world is quite predictable in, in many cases. Um, if you can understand a couple of variables that are important to natural systems, then you can predict sort of what's going to happen within reason, within a fairly, you know, fairly reasonable way. And so I think nowadays, I mean, going fishing or going hunting has changed, of course, a lot in the last, you know, since Google Earth, basically. Um, and so, yeah, before I even moved to Guam, I was checking out the seafloor and checking out all the nautical charts to make sure I knew exactly what was there. And so that's really where it starts. It's almost like you have to do your homework in the library before uh, before you get in the water when you go to a new place. Now it seems to be the, the way of it. So what are those variables? There's the upwelling. Right. That's, yeah, yeah. So the that's all oceanography stuff. Um, yeah, that's all. so the variables that I kind of looked for when I got here and we kind of figured out where. where um, 
was just looking at uh, yeah some of the basic things like topography and where's some cool looking topography and then for around here in Guam um, we're just sitting on the tops of all these little volcanoes some of them stick out of the water and some of them are submerged and so um, so that's kind of the first thing to look for topography and then yeah, where there's small fish, where there's upwelling, which usually brings up nutrients, then there's you know, zooplankton, phytoplankton, and fish feet. So we just sort of looked at it as kind of in an analytical way, um, almost from the get-go. I mean, we were talking about these things. Okay, where should we find these fish? Let's look at the chart. This is where the water movements are. Let's see if there's fish there. And so by ground-truthing those observations, we, we can pretty much find the species we're looking for a hundred percent of the time now. Um, most, you know, if they're in the area. Yeah. So I, I remember, uh, the one time we went out offshore and there was that boil from the updwelling that was probably the size of a football field. That was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like <laughs> it just looked like there had to be something cruising around on the, on those updwellings and things like that. But it was, I was afraid to kind of jump in cause you didn't know there was so much water moving. Like what, if it's going to like down, like a downdraft or something. Um, Is I there? But, no, Rob, you weren't there, but, uh, oh, obviously it was Mike. Yeah. I remember that too. I remember we kind of looked at it and we're like, Hey, you want to get in? And we're kind of like, uh, <laughs> I think so, man. That doesn't Not look like myself. I can't swim against that at all. You can come um, with me. <laughs> Yeah, so, and I mean, oddly enough, I mean, not oddly enough, exactly, that that particular location is one of the locations that yellowfin tuna are consistently caught, right? Yeah, um, and so, yeah, so there's obvious reason why that is. All that upwelling is bringing up nutrients and the fish are there. So, yeah. so can you uh, walk, like, I guess, the listeners through when we, obviously, we see now a bank, um or, you know, some sort of topography that looks interesting, you get there, what are the steps that um, you do when we get there? Like, I know them, but can you share them with everybody? Great secrets, man. You can't give that away. Like, <laughs> okay. No, I'm just kidding. I don't mind telling. We figured it out, and it's not, it's not rocket surgery or anything. Um, yeah, when we go to a new place, we kind of have a protocol. We follow it almost every time without fail. Right. Charm. And now I'm confident to say that we can find dog tooth tuna a hundred percent of the time, right? We can go out there and I, you know, I'm not going to guarantee anything cause you're not paying for anything, but, uh, <laughs> but we yeah. can get, put you on top of a dog for sure. It's not the um, biggest dog. Yeah. Dog. And so <laughs> that, I mean, just seeing them is not the, not the end of the game, right? I mean, it's up to you to get it in the boat, but, but, uh, putting them on, putting, you know, the boat on top of them is pretty standard now. And, uh, and that's because we totally just are analytical about it and follow a system. Um, our system, you know, is basically we go out to the locations and, uh, we just check to see what the weather's doing and what the currents are doing. So kind of the first thing is you go to where you think the topography is going to be and dog tooth hang out on the banks, um, where the surface, you know, where the shallow, um, slope of the surface comes up and tops out. Um, so I'll put you right there and then see which way the current's going. And then, so somebody usually jumps in the water and watches if they can see the bottom, watches what the current's doing. And if the current's moving from deep to shallow, then the conditions are probably right. 
Um, and then the next thing is just to find some interesting topography, like a cliff or like a very steep drop off. Um, for some reason that seems to hold fish. It seems to hold rainbow runners. Yeah. Uh, and then once you see the rainbow runners, then you know, you're in the right place and, and there's going to be dogs circling underneath. Um, yeah. So it's just kind of a, it's kind of a system. We just get out there. We're like 10 minutes to 10 minutes to the location. Boys, everybody starts suiting up we throw one guy in the water he looks at the topography and sits in the water for five minutes and just watches which way the current's going the current's going in the right direction then we get back in the boat head offshore to about 300 feet drop back in the water with the whole team and then uh, and then they just get pushed from deep water into shallow water and when it starts lighting up it starts happening yeah uh, i just want to touch upon you said 300 feet have you spent uh, quite a bit of time in America lately? Because that's very un, uh, uh, it's very American of you. The rest of the rest of the world that's actually um, using the metric system. Yeah, no, I have to talk to these guys in the way they understand sometimes. So 100 meters is my magic number to get in at. Right. So, okay, so we're talking about hunting dogs, obviously. And unfortunately, most of the lessons are learned through failure uh, and my far shots and stupidity. Uh <laughs> what do you what do you guys what's like your ideal setup for like uh going after large dog tooth pretty standard big shaft to uh two floats on a breakaway system um eight millimeters plus on the shaft slip tips if you have them double floppers even better to me i don't know some people disagree but yeah you're talking about the gear setup or sort of the system set up what what do specifically you're interested in yeah well uh just the gear setup and then like yeah well over the course of time what we talked about um when we were, when i was down there was our whole system set up too like somebody's working the chum somebody's got the tuna gun somebody's got the you know smaller gun yeah yeah we've got that kind of down to a really good system right now um yeah so in terms of gear as rob said just strong as strong as you can make it because yeah, bulletproof they will find the weak link and break it for sure and so so just strong on the gear but yeah I, I really like the system we have right now i like i really like it when there's three guys in the water for a couple of reasons um just safety i mean and it seems to work well we basically have a setup where we drop the flasher in the middle and the chums usually on the flasher and usually the guy working the um, flashers and working the chum will have a real gun and their idea the idea there is that they're just chumming like crazy and uh and then if when the rainbow runners come in it's you know they're just as tasty or more tasty more so tasty. um so the guy on the chum actually gets to shoot more often because they get the the real gun to shoot rainbow runners um and then on the outside of both the guys with the with the chum you'll have two dog shooters on the sides and so the sides basically just wait to see a dog come up and and they're on breakaways with you know the float systems uh, and then, yeah, when an opportunity arises and a dog comes up to the flasher or to the chum, then, then it's their turn to take a shot. Right. Uh, and that, yeah, I love that system. It, it works for a few reasons. You know, eyes are in the water, but not too many. Um, each have a job to do. And it's so, you know, one guy's hanging on to the flasher and making sure the chum and the flasher stay together. 
Um, and then two guys are just looking periphery, looking for dogs and anything else that comes in. Uh, and then I also like, because it's safe, um, you know, you've got when one person's down, you got two people up and, uh, in the blue water. That's, that's good. Especially when the sharks show up. Um, oh my God, the sharks. It's just nice. I don't know. I just like to, like to know that, you know, if somebody were to have a black water, you know, a shallow water blackout or the sharks, something happened, the, the sharks catch a leg or something like that by accident, um, that you got somebody to deal with the gear and somebody to sort of initiate the rescue. So, um, yeah, it just works well for us. And then uh, usually then there's a driver, of course, the live boat. And depending on the on the weather conditions, most of the time we have two people in the boat. So one's just sort of a spotter making sure that everything's good and paying attention to the divers. And then a the driver just driving the boat. So, uh, yeah, so our system seems to work really well with five people. Three in the water, two in the boat. Um, yeah. Nice. Thank, thanks for sharing that information, by the way, too. Um, I remember uh, it took a while to kind of develop that system, and we did a lot of talking about that. And it's kind of cool to see, like, it, you know, working out for you guys. And then, Rob, you shot that 90-pound, um, was it the dog tooth, right after I left? Uh, 40 kilo one. Yeah. You want to walk us through that? 40 <laughs> kilo. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really fun day because uh, that was our first time having two two people out there with us, Steve and uh, Lauren. Oh yeah. So like these guys, they saw me like from a serious person, you know, my age, twenty six years old, and everything. So like a kid after shooting that duck, dude. <laughs> it was like I was like a little, a little kid, school. Man. Girl. I was screaming like a girl, dude. But uh, so yeah, so we did. We were basically. Actually, Lauren was on the flashers and chum. She didn't have a gun. She just wanted to film and uh, and just dive and just see what we do, right? And so she was, like, doing a great job. I was actually freaking out because we shot something small after that and, like, or before that. And uh, and I turn around and I look at Lauren and she's, like, she's chumming up a storm still, man. And she's, and she's flashing, like, super well. Like, really, really, uh, really a good team player, you know? And then there's this big dog shows up and I don't know, remember who was in the water. With, you were in the water with me, right? Okay. So Mike was in the water with me and I look at Mike and he's not looking at it. And then I look at Steve and I think he's the one that's fighting like a rainbow runner or something. So I'm like, okay, dude, this dog's mine. You know, I swam full throttle straight at it, popped it right in the shoulder, came out the gill plate. It was a perfect shot. Probably hit a lot of vitals. Um, so it took my, I only have one float set up. It took the float down like I just remember the, the shot mark, going dude. off and watching the float just go down, down. I mean, you couldn't see it. The visibility there is about a hundred and fifty feet to yeah. two hundred feet on a good day when I mean, we have amazing water out here, and that float just gone. It's go it was it's gone. gone. I, I didn't think it was coming back. You can see in my video I posted on Instagram, the float goes yeah. and appears, and I'm like, I get up to the surface, and I'm like, please come back, please. It was so fun, man. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't, dude. That's a testament to that product. I can't believe that thing surfaced back up too, because that thing was moving down. Yeah, guys, evolved diving floats, man. <laughs> I gotta shout them out. Not only because they're my sponsor, but it was proven at that moment that, like, dude, that float is indestructible. Um, I just remember it coming back up. I looked over and like it was down for a minute, minute and a half, and, and then I just looked over and I was like, kind of just out of the middle of nowhere, just nothing but blue. And then this little float 
started coming back up and it was coming up so fast it was still when it came up it yeah wasn't it wasn't like usually it like circles or they kind of you know spin as they come back up but this one was just coming straight up and uh i can remember, just remember oh i didn't look like i didn't think something was on it no i sure. thought i thought sure. the dog had ripped off or yeah. whatever shark or something. Got it. and then you think like maybe the fish was just swimming back up and then no. that's kind of what happened. No, no. When it was coming back up, it was just getting pulled straight. Yeah, it was dead. It was dead after yeah, that. Yeah, it was totally, totally stoned. Died. Yeah. yeah, it seems like with the dogs, they get that just insane initial run. And if you can stop them, if you can get, like, weather that little, like, sprint, they're pretty much done after that. Have you noticed that as well? On the float system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah for on a reel, it's like it's like on and off. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know what I'm I don't talking. recommend that. Yeah. Road a trip with you shooting dogs on a real gun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I instantly regretted that. <laughs> I was yeah. like, man, that sounded fun. Yeah, that's that water was insane. I mean, that's I I haven't traveled too much and uh well i've been to tahiti fiji and that like that but that water just was the clearest you look down and it was like you think it's 30 feet and it's 70 feet you know or something like that look at your watch you're like i'm about to black out <laughs> yeah swim into the bottom <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good story <laughs> um so yeah, would you can yeah would you consider that like your dream fish like what would be your guys's dream fish Oh man, stick fades, old stick fades. <laughs> Big blue marlin, dude, in our home water. That's a dream fish. Yeah, I know you've been chasing that for a while. Yeah, four four years to be precise. I've only seen them once, and we weren't even targeting it. I think it was real gun time. Yeah, we had real guns like for Wahoo, and then we saw a big blue marlin. Didn't get a shot, but it was cool. I don't know. For me, I'm not not really into like dream fish kind of a thing. I the thing that I like the most is that it's part of our nearly everyday or certainly weekly lifestyle. Where um, love, love to get food for our family and friends, and then for me, that just sort of starts. You know, once it hits the once you see it, and once it hits the the boat, then that's like a third of the way there right bonus, bonus. and then so it's all the fun part and you get to shoot the fish and all that kind of stuff but then i don't know the whole culinary aspect of it is really where i get excited too it's, it's actually getting to be a problem now to the point where when i see a fish like swim by <laughs> i'm just picturing like which part i'm gonna make which dish out of <laughs> like i'm like oh look wahoo there goes tacos oh <laughs> um, um. So I, that's the best part for me. I don't really have like a dream fish. I'm more just about like, what's the next amazing dish that we're going to try and make. Right. I think too, when you like, you know, obviously when you stay focused, like it's almost like showing respect to the fish by just trying to like, when you have friends over, like how we did it all the time at, at your, you know, both your guys' houses, like where you have your friends over and everybody's joining in and eating it. And it's just like, it's just that circle of life, but it's so, it's just everything about it just feels so good. I love it. The best. Yeah. I don't uh, want to preach you or anything, but there is like a tremendous amount of satisfaction derived from that, right? Like you're, you've gone out, 
you put the effort in to um, get all your equipment ready and you know, all the, the time it takes to get everything sort of set up to do what you're going to do. You go out, you successfully land a fish. Of course, that's always fun and always, you know, what the dreams are made of. But then it just continues on for like a day or two when you're smoking a bunch of, you know, tuna or wahoo on the smoker and then you give it to a bunch of your friends or you have everybody over to, for a big feast. That just, that's a huge amount of satisfaction, right? That's tremendous, tremendous. I feel like that's a primal thing too. Like just something in your body and you're just like, I'm supposed to be doing this. You know, I love it. That's my calling. It certainly does allow you to like, Oh yeah. A little bit, but um, I don't know. It's this hugely, the thing that I think we're super fortunate here, like we're incredibly fortunate um, is that, it's not like a once in a year trip for us here. Um, like it's every week we can go out or twice every week, you know, sometimes twice a week. And so it really has just become like the lifestyle. Like, yeah, I mean, this is going to sound a bit pretentious, but we don't eat frozen fish anymore no, just because, no. because I noticed that the taste makes a huge difference, even if it's been frozen for a few days. So, so we'll freeze it and keep, if we get a big catch, we keep it and make a bunch of stuff out of it. But now we're trying other things like, smoking and other preserving methods so that um so you can kind of share with your family and friends but uh but you don't have to like save it for later kind of a thing right i mean i don't mean to sound we're going out there and pillaging the ocean or anything but just go out and get a couple go out and get one fish a week or one fish every you know every couple of days and uh feed your family with it and it's always fresh and it's just an incredible quality of life yeah that's what one drop's all about i think that's where that one drop comes from. One drop, one fish, and then yeah. done. Yeah, I just yeah. think it's interesting. I think it's interesting too because, like, when I look back and the time um, that I still daydream about <laughs> in Guam with you guys, um, I don't think of. I honestly, I don't think of like the individual fish that act that that short thirty seconds of shooting it and getting it back. I just remember the whole experience of being with my friends and swimming from the day I first met Mike and we went out on the reef right in your backyard. And, um, and then like when I pulled up to the Marina and I look over and I see, I hadn't even met you guys personally and, and you and the rest of the one drop boys, like you guys are like, what's up, Brett? And like yeah. just that whole thing. Oh, um, cool. And we all did well that day. Yeah. You guys, I remember like it was such an introduction cause we were trying to, uh, dive the fads and then we came up to you guys and you had that stack full of like that cooler stack full of fish um, <laughs> that's right you guys were out of ice or something yeah, we had to we take all the fish. yeah <laughs> we're like yeah we got one and you guys are like oh can you help us with the you know it was incredible and it was definitely humbling dude like you know how it is you learn so much when you travel um and it really like shapes uh makes you a better spear fisherman and a better person i feel like too so, like, kind of leads me into uh, you went and did that Blue Water World Cup. And I think the thing that was always interesting for me was that you had never been off Guam before. And then you went, you left Guam. And when you left Guam, you went way down into Mexico um, to do that competition. And, like, what did you learn down there? What did, what, how was that, like, going from diving Guam to this new area, um, new variables and things like that? Well... Oh man, dude. So the, the diving aspect was culture shock. 
uh, like you said, I've never done any diving other than like Guam, right? I mean, besides Rota. But when you come from warm, clear, crystal clear bath water to diving Baja, it's, it was it was crazy. On the surface, it was all right, but over there they have this thing. It's called the thermocline. <laughs> that's where all the uh, that's where all the good fish are at. <laughs> So like you'd go from like Guam waters on the surface and it would be fine like you you can hunt water. Yeah, yeah, like that or I think the temperature was like 78 or like almost 80 during the summertime when I went. Uh but uh so hunting wahoo's okay, hunting wahoo, mahi, whatever uh, on the surface. But when you hit that thermocline it goes from that nice warm bath water and it was kind of clear up there to like chocolate milk that's like on the verge of freezing man it was like 60 degrees or something like that in thermocline and just hits you and you can't hold your breath you gotta go back up and like rethink your strategy <laughs> how are we gonna shoot this amberjack you know like this is crazy yeah that, that's and then there were surprising things uh, um but but like other than that uh hunting the pelagic species was pretty similar to here just minus the ultra clear water. And then all the guys there too, like there's so many, I guess I don't want to say famous, but I mean, pretty popular, uh, well-seasoned guys there too. Did you get a chance to learn from like pick each other's brains a lot? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's definitely a, a bunch of big names over there. Uh, Pete Coriel was over there. Uh, one of the guys that really stood out to me was, uh, he was really competitive. It was, uh, Jason Whitehead. Uh, he was the second place, and then Pete was first. Uh, so, yeah, I got to chat with them a bunch. I was watching Jason as he was, like, making his own flashers. I was talking to Pete about his camera gear and what he's using for, like, filming and stuff. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot. One thing I did learn, they're all using a lot of those uh, Alemani guns, those big – I call it the big boy gun. One day yeah. I'll get, get me one and be a big boy. <laughs> Third grand, right? Yeah, they're like three grand. Big budget. Yeah. Price is nice too, huh? Yeah. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Um, yeah, speaking of guns, like what do you, what are you guys using right now? Like for obviously for uh, your pelagic fish when you're going out. Just, um, yeah, I don't know. My thoughts on the guns have sort of evolved over over the last few years, for sure. Um, to be honest, I'm actually trying to go smaller and smaller now. Uh, in terms of like shaft diameters, um, not lengths, lengths and guns are still quite large, you know, blue water guns, but I see these guys, uh, I guess for big blue fin and big yellow fin tuna, you need these massive cannons, but most of the stuff that we're using around here are like for Mahi and Wahoo and the dogs are like, uh, you know, pretty long shafts. I've got like 190 centimeter shafts on, uh, seven mil and eight mil shafts. Um, two and three bands, three bands for any of the dogs, of course. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, for the most part, I think I'm trying to. I'm actually starting to think smaller is better in terms of um, more accurate shot placement and thinner diameter for penetration. Right. Uh, and so in that case, you know, I'm veering away from the really big diameter shafts to like smaller diameter with stronger cable shooting line and cable um, slip tips now. So um, yeah, that's sort of what I'm. I'm using. I, I don't know if you want me to name drop or anything. I'm all in the hot rod spear guns right now, and got a couple of his going. Yeah. Um, he's great. Paul's great because he just custom makes exactly what I want. So, and he knows. He he knows it's it's for doggies. Yeah. So that's what he specializes yeah. in. So he's been yeah. great. Uh, mine's pretty simple too. It's a three band aim right uh, cuddle bone. They call it the King Venom. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's, it's not a roller or anything. It's a conventional three-band gun, pipe gun. So, I mean, it does the trick. I haven't had a fish where the shaft hasn't not penetrated it. So, um, it does the job. And then for the reef stuff or like Wahoo and smaller flagics, I got a, a two-band gun, two-band real gun. I like to use the real gun sometimes to keep you humble. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I I know that Dean started doing it where he's necking down the uh, end of the spears to make them more uh, hydrodynamic and more efficient. And I imagine that would be good for uh, penetration. Um, but I haven't personally used one. So. Oh, I haven't either. I didn't know he was doing that. Yeah. He's taking them, uh, you know, the larger diameter shafts and the last. I, I'm not really sure if it's a foot or, you know, six inches and he's necking them down to where they're, I mean, it probably make them more susceptible to getting bent there. But, you know, if you're shooting a fish that big, um, you're probably, it's probably going to bend anything. Yeah. Right. Well, I yeah. know that's, for, that's good for slip tips because you don't want that slide ring sliding past a certain point of the shaft. Right. So right. For slip tips, that's perfect. That's what you want. So. yeah we usually put like a piece of electrical tape or something to stop it from sliding back because i mean i've had it where it slides back penetrates and then pulls right out and that thing gets stuck for some reason that slide ring just right doesn't. yeah yeah i lost like a um i don't know 50 pound uh yellow tail like that would have been my biggest and i cried I was like, you lost it, so you got to make it a little bit heavier than 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was like, uh, yeah. there's a world record, you know. Okay, there we <laughs> go. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, so, like, you guys, what is, I know we were going to do that one trip, hush hush, to a certain place. What What is your, like, dream spearfishing trip? Like, do you have a dream location? Like, some people will say Ascension Island, things like that. Uh, and I know, Mike, you've traveled to all these crazy places, which we could probably get into, where you look in every hole and there's a giant grouper staring at you in the face, you were telling me. Um, so, having experienced that, what do you think would be, like, your spirit, uh, dream trip? Uh, I don't know. That's hard to say, I guess. I mean... We're kind of living it right now. I, mean, I was yeah, just going to say that. <laughs> we literally go spearfishing like three or four times a week, man. It's not a trip anymore. It's just a lifestyle. Um, and so so there's that. But, of course, what's around the next corner is always sort of a driver. And so, 
yeah, we're, we just started planning our next sort of longer trip as of, well, we got two on the go, maybe one in March and then one in for May, June. Um, and so, you know, you just want to try and go to remote places just to see if there's more pristine conditions and dinosaurs and dinosaurs. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, we've got a couple, we've got one plan for the Northern Marianas islands, which is, um, ultra remote. And then, uh, and then we've got another one that we're thinking about some of the local, the other Micronesian islands. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's just going to see to, you know, where we can go to apply our, our formula and see if we can come up with some interesting experiences. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely times where I've been daydreaming for months and months about the next trip. And I personally have to have like something on the horizon to sort of daydream about. Yeah, that's fine. Um, that's a big <laughs> yep. I've always got like two or three. It's like the- never satisfied. I feel like, I mean, you are satisfied, but you're always like, we could do better. We could do this. What about this place? Like mm-hmm. it's that adventure part, you know, that I think, right. It's just, I, I think that's why we're kind of outdoorsy people, so to speak. Anyways, we always want that adventure, you know? Yeah. yeah that's ever right. Just to explore sort of new places and exploring reefs underwater is just pure fun. Right. But it's really about, it's really about, uh, just the whole thing involved, right? The preparation. I mean, my wife's given me a grief about, you know, taking up the floor and got all the gear all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I'm always constantly just sort of fixing things and tweaking things. But that's a huge part of the, the trip, right? The dream trip is the preparation. And, and then all the scouting time that you're doing on all the nautical charts and then Google Earth and then like organizing boats and all that all leads up to that. 10 second trigger pull right and then uh and then the culinary aspects of it after that so i find i have to have like my everyday routine which is you know we spearfish a lot and then just locally and then you have to have like a sort of a smaller trip that you're planning in a couple of weeks and then you've got like a medium trip that could happen when the weather's right if if the weather's sort of the perfect weather scenario comes you like to have a chance to go out to a new place you've been thinking about and then you have to have like a big trip that's like one every six months or every year or whatever to like get all the guys together, go out yeah. someplace new. Brad, how about you, Rob? Uh, man, I got to say, we live in such a perfect predicament <laughs> where, where what, what I want is like just, you know, right across the street over the next island up. Like it's like 40 miles away. We can get there on a weekend. That's, and it's, it's as good as it gets, you know? Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> that yeah. was, uh, yeah. Wow. But, but I got to say, man, Jaga is making Fiji look really good right now. Oh, That's- yeah. All those giant dogs, big GTs pulling up. Just hey, dying, man. Yeah. I know. And it's got, you know, I think about that too, because I've been to Fiji and it's like, and I mean, this is on my honeymoon and I was spearfishing then too, but I, I didn't know, like if I had known now what I knew then it would have been like, maybe the honeymoon net wouldn't have happened. I don't know. Cause I would have been on the water the whole time, but yeah, you would have been divorced. <laughs> yeah. Before it even started. Like I saw like some of the, yeah, just giant, fish there i mean so it's not just that reef where they're hitting it's that whole area you know and it's like the more remote you get right the whole adventure aspect what if what's there 
you know, even if you don't pull the trigger on the fish, but yeah. just to see it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you make your heart beat fast, man. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys have been doing a lot of competitions uh, in Guam and I'll, I'll toot your horns. You've been winning a lot of them. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hey, it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> this guy's winning them just as much as I am. Yeah. So what are you, what are some of the things that you guys do um, before competitions or what do you do to prepare for competitions <laughs> to help you with your success? <laughs> we have this, uh, well, I got this uh, this ritual, or not ritual, but how would I say it? It's, I got some uh, good pictures of his ritual. It's a custom, it's a tradition that I go out the night before, have a couple of beers, a couple of women. No, I'm just kidding. Not a women part. But uh, yeah, just have a couple of beers and uh, show up hungover to the competition and uh, pray. Yeah. That's what? <laughs> well, I mean. Let, let's not gloss over that, Rob. Let's get a little more into it. I mean, we went out. I think Mike was on a team. I was on a team from uh, with Rob from uh, uh, Sideslip. Yeah, Sideslips. Yeah, and uh, we were in the water for like seven hours. Come back in. You guys were dry. Like, how long were you in the water for? Uh, I would say about that day, it was the Umatic competition, the shore dive swim out, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I think we were in the water for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you won the biggest fish. Yeah, well, Pete, Pete, my partner, he shot the yeah. biggest. Uh, and then I, I just put a cherry on top with the three uh, years in a row. These guys have done the exact same thing. Yeah, the, the competition at that particular spot, Umatic, is actually known for being the toughest one in the region because it's kind of overfished there, and so you really have to work at it. And it's also no boats allowed, so you have to swim right from shore and then swim back. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely got the, the reputation for being the toughest competition in the region, for sure. Um, and these guys' strategy is just like, so they have, like, most points or whatever for the most fish caught. But then they also have the biggest fish, um, biggest fish uh, award, and these guys just go for the biggest fish each time. It's easier than trying to work a dead reef, right? So that's why yeah. we do it. So we go out, and Pete, for some crazy reason, Lucky Pete. Shoot, yeah, this is why we call him Lucky Pete. First, first year, he shoots a 46-pound wahoo in the deadest region of Guam. The next year, same exact place, same exact strategy, he shoots a 52-pound wahoo in the deadest region of Guam. And then the next year, he goes out, and in the first five minutes, he shoots a... Uh, I think it was like 24 pounds, a 24 pound GT. And I was so hungover, man. I was begging him. I was going, I was like, I think we're going to win. Let's go in. I haven't seen a 24 GT in two years. So let's go in. Let's go in, man. We got enough. And uh, yeah, yeah. So we, we, I think we just, just took that one uh, over these guys. Uh, I think they had like a fish that came in and like 17 or 18 pounds that day. So. Yeah, that's a good strategy, man. We uh, we grinded out on that one. We just go and, and grind <laughs> 60, 70 dives, and you're just just swimming and trying to put fish on the on the stringer, and and then so yeah. Anyways, 
got lucky on that one too. But uh, but we put the effort in, and these guys are just sitting on the beach, hanging out, smoking and drinking beers by like <laughs> nine in the morning or something. <laughs> so so I think the tip is drink beer the night before because whatever apparently it comes out of your pores, it attracts monster fish. Like <laughs> uh, I don't I don't condone that, people. Yeah. <laughs> There's an awesome sweet picture I took. Of him just like yeah. leaning up against the tire of his truck, laying on the ground, just looking like hammered. <laughs> just before he gets in the water, I wasn't feeling like, it, man. An hour before he wins the competition, just like completely thrashed, hungover. <laughs> Sweet. That was too funny. I love it. Love it. Uh, so you guys, we're talking about you know when we do the competition, we have buddies and all that stuff, and and because uh, in Guam. Uh, you're diving, you know, I say deep, but I mean deep, uh, you know, what, like, depends on where we're hunting, but mostly, I mean, you guys dive in 90 feet sometimes, right? 80, 90 feet, uh, pretty consistently. Um, with being a good buddy, can you give people some input on how to, you know, ways, things to look for, how to properly spot your buddy and things like that? I mean, because there was a guy, uh, there was just a recent death again, right, in Guam with a sailor or airman or something? Yeah, man, it's sad. It was the person that usually rescues the people that are in trouble, you know? So when that happens, it really hits It really hits the rest of the pre-divers, you know? Yeah. It's pretty common um, around here. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you want to talk about safe diving practices, go take a class, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the, just, just be anal about it, right? Just be super, super on top of it all the time because it happens super fast. Um, for me, that was kind of one of the major kind of um, challenges when I first moved here is that, like I had kind of alluded to before, I hadn't really had to work very hard to spearfish because we'd been in really pristine places that, that uh, you know, you could, you could yeah, like you were saying, you could swim on down 10 feet and basically under every big coral head, there was a giant looper hanging out and you just shoot in the face and go and get it for dinner, right? It was like, it was just like easy. Um, and so when I got here, the first couple of times I was diving out, I was just like, where's all the big fish? You know, like there was, there was very few big fish, at least initially. I, I really had to learn how to, how to look for them and, and bring them in. And so. So there was a super steep learning curve for me. And so I kind of learned that these guys are diving super deep. So I had to completely revamp my system and learn how to frenzel and go take a, a proper free diving course. I kind of was like, oh, I've been free diving for 10 years. I'm not going to learn too much. And I totally learned lots, um, especially the, the rescue aspects of it. That was the most important thing, I think. Um, and then we've used them. We've seen them happen. We've had guys black out on us. Um, I blacked out once and got saved. My bacon got saved by my partner. Um, and so, yeah, diving sort of consistently and super deep here, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and it's super dangerous here. So uh, you want to throw some statistics. In the last three years alone in the Marianas Island, um, nine, it was eight, but now just as of, what, two weeks ago, nine uh, young spearfishers have died due to hypoxia or shallow water blackout. Um, just in the past three years alone. And so, um, so that's a huge deal, right? That's like, that's too high. That, that's way, just way insanely high. Um, and so one of the factors associated with that is kind of an interesting thing. Um, so, 
No, it's good. I just wanted to talk about that just to, again, kind of reiterate it for all the guys that, you know, um, when you go from diving in the kelp beds where here, like Rob was saying, you're hunting around the thermocline a lot of times. You don't have to dive real deep. Um, so everybody's like, yeah, I dive alone. I dive alone. And it's like, yeah, you can do that if you're diving at 20 feet and, you know, sometimes hanging out there. But when you start dropping and trying to get bottom time on the bottom and trying to course a lot of fish in, like that's when you really got to know how to step your game up and just be careful. Um, so I just like to kind of reiterate that to the newer guys or guys that haven't traveled much and, you know, something I learned too. Um, and in a way like you, as you allure to luring fish in, um, for me here was an incredible experience. I'm still learning tons and tons, but it was completely different hunting here. A lot of the hunting techniques that I'd used in the South Pacific and Fiji and Vanuatu and all these places, um, didn't work at all here so a lot of stuff i went and had learned how to lure in wahoo and lure in you know a few different things it just doesn't work here and so we had to completely learn um and of course hanging out with the local guys that are that are doing it um i liken it to fly fishing when you're like spin casting you just drag a line through the water and something's shiny and hopefully a fish bites whereas you transition to fly fishing and you have to learn all about you know what is hatching in that area at that particular um location and that location at that time and so there's just this entire other world of learning about it here in guam it was all about um you know when you jump in the water it's just not tons of fish everywhere but there are fish here you just have to bring them into you for the most part yeah they're and smart so, really smart and so i've learned like four or five different grunting techniques in order to like grunt in different <laughs> fish right mm -hmm. And the guys here are awesome at it, right? And so I'm learning a whole bunch of different things from that. And so, yeah, that combines with the freediving aspect. So not only are you going deep, you have to have long bottom times so that you can get down, lay on the bottom, you know, hide, hide, <laughs> yeah, like literally stuff yourself inside a, a hole or beside a coral head or something, um, and then start grunting in a very particular way to try and wait out to bring in a fish in, a, in into shot range, and also. Um, long shots, right? I mean, we use long guns with three, two and three bands just because you got to put it out there. Um, and then if you're, you know, if you have that experience where you're down there for, you know, a longer time than you're used to, then you got to get to the surface again. And, and so, yeah, the, the shallow water blackouts here, um, because of that whole scenario, it's basically that you have to dive deeper, stay longer, uh, and employ, employ a bunch of different techniques to bring these fish in. Um, yeah, it makes you more susceptible to shallow water blackout. And so absolutely dive with a partner one down, one up and, and, um, and making sure you're paying attention to that partner is huge here. It's like the number one thing here. Diving with a partner, man, is automatic. If you, it doesn't matter if you're spear fishing, free diving, snorkeling, you need a partner. I mean, we, I say that, and you go out once in a while by yourself, and I certainly do. Um, yeah, but we're hunting Bua. Yeah, but it's away. very, very, very controlled. And I'm a hypocrite here. I'm totally saying you got to have a partner, and I'll go out by myself. But you absolutely yeah. set limits, right? Like 40 feet is my max limit here when I'm by myself, and I have my watch that goes, yeah, an alarm goes limits. off. Um, sure. 
you know, at a certain time and so on. Just like, okay, my alarm's off. I'm, I'm going back up no matter what when you're diving by yourself. And that's more of just like a, you know, you're after work or after, you know, early morning fish before work kind of thing. Um, but then when you're, you, you kind of don't really consider that serious because you're diving very shallow. Um, and then, but at the moment you're actually out for a fish with your, with your buddy, then you can, that's cool because you can open it up, right? You can like say, okay, I'm doing a couple of deep dives here. Watch me make sure it's good. Right. And, and push your limits and all that stuff. And so, but yeah, the diving partner, you cannot, you will not, you will, will not live, uh, without having a super strong partner that's right on top of you. Yeah. I have a partner you can trust. That's another thing. Yeah, that's the other part of fun part of it too, right? Is the camaraderie that kind of develops. Like you have your diving partners and you really learn like how they dive specifically, like whether they come up and they give you the okay symbol as soon as they get to the surface or whether they do it out of the water or whether they don't do it at all, but they kind of look at you and you're kind of watching them for a little bit and you just kind of know what to look for. Um, and so having a consistent diving partner is, you know, or a couple of partners is super key for being able to, kind of push your limits because um because you know what to look for and you kind of know how to keep each other safe but um anyway that's a, certainly an enjoyable part of it and when you're diving with somebody new it's kind of like remember go back to the basics you know big old okay watch them for 30 seconds at the t surface when they come back up and then you're kind of you know uh game on sort of playing the newbie spear fisher when you're kind of breaking in somebody new in the depths here anyway that's why i, I find it it probably makes them feel like super comfortable too if they know that you're watching them all the time. You Absolutely. Know, being, being a newcomer spearing with someone and, and uh, you're just like, you notice they're like keeping a good eye on you. Like that, that's got to make them feel good and safe, right? So they'll start to push their limits and probably black out. But time i ever dove with rob i remember i dove with me and this guy named tim and he's a, a free diving instructor and the spiro um and so him, tim and i have been diving together and we kind of were used to each other and the first time we rob took us out to this new spot um you know tim and i were kind of i don't want to say lackadaisical in that we were kind of like we were just comfortable with each other and we weren't giving each other like the a-okays but we were watching each other and this guy was like right in your face he's like are you okay you know are you okay and like like yeah yeah we're good man and they're like ah. and so i'm alive yeah we're good thanks to you it wasn't like that but you know you were like every single time and i was anyway the funny part after was was tim and i were like man that guy showed us up on safety for sure we weren't being as nearly as safe as that guy and so anyway and so uh, it was super comforting and and that's totally how it should be and we try to you know make sure that's the, the case especially when diving with somebody you haven't killed before yeah, yeah. that's cool man that's a cool guy yeah good yeah i remember that video with the great white right the one in um in uh, hawaii was that tim that sent us to us yeah, the one with Ocean Ramsey and everything. Why, why, why you gotta go there? Oh, <laughs> hey, shout out to Ocean Ramsey, man. Oh, she's pretty. You know. But that's about it. <laughs> okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, moving on. Since we're talking about uh, scholars. Uh, so, Mike. Oh, <laughs> a terrible segue. <laughs> You, uh, you, uh, obviously you're, uh, you're an educated man. Uh, you have your doctorate, uh, in biology, right? What exactly is your specific, um, 
Um, I did undergrad marine biology, and my graduate, my PhD was in neurophysiology. Uh, so I currently work on sort of eco-physiology work uh, here in the lab. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of big words there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, so how do you think this... So the one thing that is, I always find was really unique about spirit vision with you um, is that you, uh, when you shared with me when we went diving, you were like, okay, uh, this is this fish, and you can say, like, I love the fact that I can ask you so many questions, and, and um, you're so knowledgeable on a biology level about the fish. How, how do you think that has, like, helped you? Well, I mean, what do you think, like, it, other than understanding the fish or uh, understanding the fish ID and all that stuff, how do you think your background has helped you in spearfishing, like understanding how visibility works or understanding, like, you know? Um, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know if it makes me any better or anything like that. I guess you could do fish counts or something. But um, I, I just, I'm sort of a try and look at it sort of a logical way, right? That I, I kind of view the world as a bit of a machine. So it's basically an electrical chemical machine like your body is, so is the ocean. And, and uh, everything kind of works in a quite a predictable way. I mean, we, we as biologists look at things and science uses the scientific method to sort of um, look at things quite practically. And it turns out that things are quite predictable. Um, I mean, there's some randomness associated with it, but if you just find the factors that are involved in describing that scenario oftentimes if you're looking close enough they're predictable and so our example where we first started about started out talking about how we predict finding dogs in our region dog tooth in our region um those were just like three or four variables that are that are very predictable and once we started applying those variables um or looking for them and going out when those variables lined up in a sort of a predictable way, we find the dogs 100% of the time now, right? And so, um, and so when it comes to fish, that's kind of the same thing. I, I think that they're, um, I mean, it's still fun because there's some randomness associated with it, but uh, but I think in many things are very predictable. Like, for example, I mean, Rob, where do you find uku, right? If you want to go shoot an uku today, where would you specifically go look? Um, I know, but I won't tell you. <laughs> That's right. So he's looking for a specific habitat, right? So you're not going to go to the shallow reef. You're not going to, at least around here, you know, there's a very specific set of variables that you're going to go. And I guarantee you can chum up or go and see an uku, grunt up an uku 100% of the time, right? Um, landing the shot is a different story, oh, but at least seeing gosh. one is, is what's important. And so... Um, and so you can kind of say that for almost every fish around here. Some of the pelagics are a little less predictable, like uh, rain, uh, not rainbow, um, mahi and wahoo, because they have seasonality. But, um, but even that's really predictable, right? Um, and so as a scientist, I don't know, I kind of look at it that way and trying to be quite analytical about it. And if you just figure out where their habitat is and figure out what water conditions and the um, wave conditions and the weather conditions are um, conducive to that particular animal, um, you're going to be able to find them quite easily. Uh, and you know, that's borne out time and time again, because we've been uh, analytical about it. There's no magic and there's no wishing out there. It just, um, there is a lucky Pete though. Yeah. Not fortunate. Part, that I, part is true. Is, is, beer, is beer one of those variables that you guys, those factors you guys throw in there? For me, yes. For me, yes. <laughs> Not me, man. Yeah. 
That's my my ticket, man. That's my ticket to the podium. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, So, like, I'm pretty much going to wrap it up here, but, like, is there anything um, you guys want to share that you didn't get a chance to talk about or uh, anything at all? Like, anybody you want to pitch? Like, obviously, like, we talked about Hot Rod, Evolve. Um, tested and proven, I guess, you know, um, uh, yeah, I just, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show and I, I know I'm kind of being long winded, but I really appreciate, um, the hot, the hospitality and sharing that world with me. And I will forever be grateful. It was incredible. And I love to come back and do it again someday for sure. You owe us, man. You owe us big time. When we show up in San Diego, you're going to take us out and show us the world down there for sure. All right. All right. I got a boat. Let's do it. Yeah. 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 That sounds awesome. Yeah, sweet. Bluefin, man. Yeah. Summertime, San Diego. Let's go. Yeah. It's looking, uh, looking good for me this, this summer, dude. I'm going to be there for a bit. So let's hit it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all I got to say is um, stay tuned, everyone. We got uh, some trips lined up. Um, hopefully one with you, Brett. To shoot some big bluefin, um, or hopefully you can come back out here to Guam and shoot some dogs with us. Uh, but so far, yeah, we got a Northern Marianas trip coming up, and uh, I think one more other than that. So stay tuned. Social media, one drop spearfishing on Instagram, or you know, one of us, but a uh, Mount Ocean or the Spear Factor. And uh, yeah, thanks for having us, Brett. Dude, we miss you. Yeah, I miss you guys too, man. That concludes our show for today. If you like what you heard, please leave a comment. And if you want more of it, check it out on our website at www.spearfactor.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.